Now let us turn to Samuel, for Samuel chapter 13. For Samuel chapter 13. Now we saw last week how the children of Israel was encouraged by God that despite the fact that they have done wickedly, foolishly, in rejecting him and insisting on having a king for themselves to do their will, yet God encouraged them and said, now, you have committed this foolishness. There will be consequences, but the fact is, if you obey me, fear me, serve me, obey me, don't rebel against me, don't go after the vain things that cannot help you, that contributes nothing to your spiritual life. Now, if you live like that, you and your king will do well. All right? That is the covenant that God keeps with his people. That wonderful promise. Now, what will happen next? Look at chapter 13. Now, we just read earlier on, or rather the chairman read from verses 1 to 13, the scene. Now, what happened was this. Well, Saul gathered 3,000 soldiers, um, 2,000 to himself, 1,000 to, um, to his son, Jonathan. Now, Jonathan managed to smite a garrison in verse 3. Now, that really made the Philistines mad. You see, to the Philistines, they always felt that the Israelites were easily to be stamped out. And to lose even one garrison was, was an embarrassing to them. And also, they, they hated, all right? the Jews, the Hebrews. Now look at verse 3. Now, and Israel also was had in abomination with the Philistines. Now they were so angry, they were so upset, and they were so intent to once and for all stamp these people out of the land, wipe them out. See what they did in verse 5. The Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel. Now, they gathered what? 30,000 chariots. 6,000 horsemen and people, means foot soldiers, as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they pitched against them. Now imagine this, 3,000 chariots, all right? Chariots at the, in those days are equivalent to the very high-tech, very high-end, very uh, powerful and fearsome um, uh, military um, uh, power that they have, all right? The equipment that they have, that is what they had, and it's, what, 30,000, and then 6,000 horsemen. So you just imagine, all right, you stand outside the church, 30,000 of that, 6,000 horsemen. Now, horses are also very powerful, very successful um, animals for, for, for war, easily defeat the animals, powerful, strong, fast. Then you see all, all that, 6,000. And then you have foot soldiers, like the sand of the sea on the seashore. Just imagine you stand outside church and this is what, before, what is before you. So they really were intent on just getting rid of this, this miser miserable 3,000 men and the rest of Israel. Now then, what happened? What happened? Now verse 6 tells us, the people saw that and they were greatly afraid. They found basically anywhere they could hide, right? In caves, in thickets, means in forests, in rocks. Okay, just find a rock and crawl under it, right? And, um, in high places, can refer to religious places. So they will go take refuge in religious places. And in pits, any hole they can, they crawl in there. Any, any rock they can, they crawl under it. That is how frightened they were. And look at verse 7. 
Now, many of them um, desert, deserted, um, went over to Jordan, the land of Gad, meaning to say, now, they, they, went, they went westward. Philistines were attacking them from the east, so they would run westward to go as far away, as stay as clear from these Philistines as possible. Scattered in every direction, in every, in every way. And not only that, look at verse 7. Well, as for Saul, he was yet in Gilgal, and the people followed him trembling. So whatever was remaining with, with, with Saul, and later on we'll find that it was only 600 left, with Saul, they were shivering with fear as they walked with Saul. Now, at this point, at this point, the Bible tells us that, well, Samuel had made an appointment um, for, to meet Saul, all right? Seven days, in seven days' time. But the Bible tells us that Saul, now he waited and waited and waited. Now he couldn't wait anymore. And he, in verse 9, went ahead and said, well, bring me burnt offerings and peace offerings. And Saul personally offered these sacrifices to God. And just when he finished, meaning to say when, when he did his last part, the Bible tells us Samuel turned up. Samuel turned up. And Sam, in verse 11, well, well, Saul ran out happily to salute him, to greet him, right? Joyfully. And then Samuel said, what hast thou done? Title today. What have you done? What hast thou done? Now, children, is it familiar <laughs> phrase to you? Maybe adults, you remember this as well when you were young? Or maybe even at the workplace, right, in school. What have you done? Now, it is not a praise, right? Wow, what have you done? Well done, well. No. When people say things like that, it means you have done something terrible. You should not have done it. What have you done would be a situation where Saul, Samuel could still smell the sacrifices. He could still see. This, this what have you done? Samuel, then Saul gave many reasons. Look at Verse 12, Saul gave reasons after reason. He said, well, you know, sorry, in verse 11, where he said, because I saw the people were scattered from me. Oh, everyone ran away from me. And that thou camest not within the days appointed. Well, you have not turned up. And then, verse 11, and that, that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash, therefore said I. Now he said, they are all gathered. Look at these um, people, you can see for your own eyes. The Philistines will come down now upon me. They are, they, I think they are coming down already. All right? And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm deserted by all my soldiers, by many soldiers. Then he said, I, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I have not prayed. I have not asked God to help. So he said, I forced myself therefore and offered a burnt offering. So this is what happened, Samuel. But I want you to notice this. Samuel said to Saul, thou hast done foolishly. You have played the fool with God. Now, what is the lesson for us to learn from this scene? It's a very well-known scene. But what are the lessons? What was happening here? Now, let's go through this. When you think about this, um, there is this thinking in this world today, right? That, well, when you go through certain situations in life, when you're in certain predicaments, certain difficult um, situation, all right, now you have to decide what is the best thing to do. 
And you have to respond based on the situation. Do you know what is situational ethics? Situational ethics? Now, I tried to look at some definition from um, um, philosophy, philosophers, well, they write about what situational ethics is, they teach about it. Now, situation ethics is basically this. It teaches that ethical decisions should follow flexible guidelines rather than absolute rules and to be taken on a case-by-case -case basis. All right? I repeat, ethical decisions should follow flexible guidelines rather than absolute rules based and to be taken on case-by-case -case basis. So it depends on the situation, case-by-case, -case, the situation. Well, what is the ethical thing to do? Well, it depends. You can't say that only one way is the right way, and you must do it that way. Now, that is situational ethics. Now, this is exactly what Saul was basically telling Samuel. Samuel, I was in this situation. You can see for yourself. Samuel, you did not turn up. Samuel, I was deserted. Samuel, I have not asked God for help. Now, don't you think it is, it is just normal? It is something that I should do, right? Why are you angry at me? Why do you, call, why do you say I played the fool? Now, situational ethics has four parts. I want you to understand these things. So I'm not here to teach you philosophy. But I want you to realize that this is how we can think in situations. And we need to be careful. We need to be warned. The reality is this. Now, look at... Verse 13, thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God which he commanded thee. For now would the kingdom have established, have established for now the Lord have, would, have, would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. Now in verse 14, but now the king, thy kingdom shall, be, shall not continue. Now I want you to understand one thing. Maybe if you were in his situation, or maybe when you read this, you say, oh, come on, Samuel, I think you're a bit, you're overreacting, overreacting a bit, Samuel. Right, children? You always feel like that, right? You break something, you did something terrible, and then daddy comes into the room, or mommy comes in the room, what have you done? And then your heart's like, what's this? Why, why are you so upset? I don't understand. Maybe between spouses as well. Why are you so upset? Now, in fact, the Bible says, well, he went out to salute, to salute, um, to salute Samuel. Because in his heart, this, this is not a problem. I'm, I'm not sure why, Samuel, you are so upset. This, this should not be a problem. But Samuel stayed consistent and Samuel stayed very clear. You have done foolishly and you have broken God's commandment. Samuel did not budge and say, well, you know, well, it's true, I can understand. No, in fact, he did the next thing. Look at what he said. He said, you know, in verse 13, you know, actually, in this situation, God would have established your kingdom, established thy kingdom in Israel forever. God would actually make use of you well, all right, until the time he, he needs to change. He would have used you. You would have a good name. But because of this act, which you feel in this situation is justified, but Saul says, but thy kingdom shall now not continue. Christians don't think that if you and I disobey God, 
break his commandment, it is all right. Depending on the situation that we are in, God will understand. No, God says, I will remove the kingdom from you, Saul. Samuel, you should understand. No, Samuel said, you have done, you have played the fool. Situational ethics have no place in the thinking and the actions and the choices of a Christian life. It has no place at all. Now, let me just explain to you what situational ethics is in the world. Because they teach this. And they tell people, this is how you should live life. Now, number one, situational ethics, they say, well, it depends on, it is about pragmatism. You know, pragmatism means it is, well, you have to do what is practical. Well, depend on the situation, come on, you have to be practical. Sometimes when we preach, the, preach um, sermons that are hard, we say, ah, oh, come on, this is not practical. Many people have come through our churches, they leave because they say, this is not practical, you know, the, this Christian living is not practical. We'll come to that afterwards. So, now, number one is do what is practical. Number two, um, well, well, actually, it's staying practical now. Number one, do what is practical. Now, what is practical? What is practical is what brings the most good. That is what is practical. Brings the most good either to myself or to others. What is, outcome, uh, gives me the outcome that I want. Uh, that is practical. Now, the second one, it is relativism, all right? Now, I'm not making this up, all right? When I research and research, all right, this is what um, 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 they teach. Relativism. Now, what is relativism? Now, they define for you. It is, there is no absolute moral rules, only relative ones. No absolute moral rules, only relative rules. And the relative, how, what to do, what is right, relative depends on the situation. This is why it's called situation ethics. In this situation, it is ethical. In another situation, it is ethical, all right? Now, then the third one. Oh, uh, before I go further. Now, relativism means this. You must avoid using words as never. You must never <laughs> break God's commandment, right? You must never use complete or perfect. You must obey God completely and perfectly. All right? I mean, totally. No half obedience. Uh, when you say things like that, uh, then it's not practical, all right? Depends on the situation. Now, then the third one is positivism. What is positivism? Now, it means that the most important choice, the positive choice, is a good outcome, especially for people, all right? Good outcome. Must be positive values. One of the things they emphasize is, is love. All right, positive thing is love. As long as it is based on love, as long as there is love, so your intention is love, all right, in that situation, then that is the right thing to do, all right? Because no absolute, right? No absolute. So as long as you love in your situation, you think you're loving, then you do it, it's fine. Now, then the, the last one, personalism, all right? So situational ethics is personalism. Now, what does it mean? Now, it means it is depending, it's your personal ideals that matters. Your personal ideals, not something that is up there, that is absolute, no one can argue with that. No, it's relative. Your personal ideals must guide you. Not absolute ideals. Your personal ideals must guide you. All right? Unchanging universal code, 
um, like biblical laws that are unchanging, universal, God's commandments are there. Well, they are not to be used. It's personal, case by case. Depends on your situation and how you feel and what is good for you. Now, the importance at the end of the day is it stresses, well, the benefit. Will you benefit or not? People benefit or not? That is the ultimate test. Situational ethics. Now, you said, how does it apply to this case? How does it apply to this case? Now, before we study the applications, all right, before we study the applications, now this morning at BBK, and it's timely that we are beginning to study about what is the Bible. Look at verse 1. I want to get some things out of the way first, because this is a very controversial topic in Bible colleges, in Christendom, um, in, among uh, theologians, and even some lay Christians, all right? Now, look at verse 1 of chapter 13. Now, it says, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years. Now, this is a big problem for many theologians, many Bible college professors. Now, NIV, for example, all right? Um, NIV, New International Version, for example, this verse is, is translated as, let me see, where is it? It says, Saul was 30 years old when he became king and when he reigned over Israel 42 years. Now, when you look at this, say, hang on, it's totally different, all right? Now, they acknowledge that these numbers, Saul was 40 years old, he reigned for 42 years. Now, these are things that are added, all right? It's what the translators feel should be the correct, what should be correct. This 42 years, uh, 42 years, 30 years old, is not in the original uh, Masoretic text. They, they, they acknowledge that. But say, you know, there's something wrong with this verse. So let's change it for God. In other words, they do not believe that God preserved His words. And when they read the text like that, in Hebrew, the original languages, they will say that, well, it doesn't make sense, so it must be wrong. Somewhere along the line, it got corrupted. God did not preserve. So let's change it for God. So that is, they constantly argue on that. Well, some are more honest, all right? The honest ones, all right? Let me read to you. New Revised Standard Version. New Revised Standard Version. Saul was dot, dot, dot. You know what dot, dot, dot means? Dot, dot, dot. Three full stops. Dot, dot, dot. Saul was dot, dot, dot years old when he began to reign, and he reigned dot, 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 and two years over Israel. Dot, dot, dot. So can you imagine you read a Bible that has places there? Oh, dot, dot, dot. They're, they're more honest. We do not know what it is, so we better don't add. But the fact is still this. They believe that, well, the Hebrew text says, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years, it's, 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 it's strange, it's contradicting. But we do not know what is the answer. But we believe that there are mistakes, God is not preserved, so let us just be honest and put dot, 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 right? Now, Bibles are like that everywhere today. And a person wrote, all right, um, when he was speaking on this message. Now, because, and he said, ah, oh, these things, they're errors, all right? It's evident, they're errors. And then when he came to the part where, in verse 5, there are 30,000 chariots, he said this. You know, it's ridiculous. 30,000, is like having 30,000, um, in his mind, like 30,000 um, F-15s. You know how much that costs? You know, 30,000, it's, it's too many, all right? 
It's impossible. And you know, normally in war, there are more horsemen than chariots. But here, there are a lot more chariots than horsemen. So I think it's 3,000. But it doesn't matter. The point is, it's a lot. Now, when preachers, pastors, Bible college lecturers, when they don't believe that God's word is perfect, and not only that, that God has preserved his word perfectly, this is how Christians will begin to think. This number, I don't think it's right. doesn't make sense, so I will just change it. But the main thing is the crux is there. Now, is that the God we believe? We believe in a perfect God. Do we believe in a perfect God that cannot give us a perfect Bible? Right? Come for BBK, we'll study more why we believe it's a perfect Bible and why we use the King James Bible, for example. Right? Now, so that out of the way... In case if you read this or you hear about this passage, you say, what is it? Now, verse 1 simply means, Now, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, in Hebrew, it simply means that, well, Saul has reigned for one year, and, and since two years ago, this is his third year. And it is in this third year that he, had, he sinned against God in this event. All right? That is simply what it means. All right? Saul... In the reign of this year, this one year after the two years that he has been reigning, in other words, in his third year, this is what happened. That is all. What is so difficult? Now, then, let us learn what are the lessons that we need to draw from this for ourselves. Now, first and foremost, I've already emphasized, you saw from this passage yourself that no matter what the situation is, it is wrong when a Christian makes decisions based on situations. Saul, Samuel made it very clear, you played the fool, you have broken God's commandment. That is it. He doesn't want to talk about, well, how many people, how many, how many, oh, you know, how long, how long did you wait? Huh? That kind of thing. He didn't want to talk about the situation with him at all. You have sinned. That is it. But the big question is this. What was the problem, really? What do you think is the problem? Because if you look at Saul's explanation, Saul's rationale, all right? Because we are going to go through some situations like that someday in our lives, maybe not at this scale, but maybe something very difficult. But you look at his, his situation and how Saul was thinking. Now, look at verse 11. Now, first he said, because I saw the people were scattered from me, all right? Is it reasonable that people and thou camest not within the days appointed? And the Philistines gathered, they are about to come upon me, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. Now, how can Samuel be angry? How can God be angry at Saul in a situation where he said, all these things are happening, it's looking bad, I must ask God in prayer, because he made it very clear, I have not made supplication I should turn to God in prayer. We just had a whole camp. Eight messages on prayer. Right? All wrong. Are we saying that? Was Samuel saying that? Was it the problem for him to pray? Or was it sacrifices? That he made sacrifices. Now, some believe that, well, he must not as a king offer sacrifices. Well, I don't think it is correct. Because later on you will see, Solomon will offer 
tremendous sacrifices as a king when the temple was, was um, set up. I don't think that was the problem. What do you think is the problem? Well, definitely we know it's not prayer. God commands men to pray without ceasing. Now, the answer is found in verse 13. Why did Samuel say that he has played the fool? He explains, Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, and he adds, which he, not me, not Samuel, which he commanded thee. I read to you again. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. Plain and simple. Now, was it that he did not turn up, Samuel did not turn up in time? I don't think so. When you see the record, it just says Samuel has not turned up. Um, in his mind, well, he has not turned up. But Samuel turned up, it could be just at the last part of the seven days. Now, but that is not the matter still. It would appear quite clearly that there was something that God commanded Saul that Saul knew very clearly about, personally commanded by God, from God to him personally, either through through, uh, definitely, most likely through Samuel himself. It was that thing that Saul broke. Right? Whether it's waiting for Samuel or whether it is, it is that he offered um, sacrifices, it could be that God says specifically for you in this situation, you are not to offer sacrifices. Samuel is supposed to offer sacrifices. Now, whatever that commandment is, is not the matter. The matter is God made it very clear that by not waiting and by offering sacrifices himself, that was the very specific thing that God says you cannot do, Saul, in your case. A very clear commandment by God. And God is saying that it, when I give a commandment, there is no situation, predicament that would justify or be grounds for you to break the commandment, no matter what you, you are facing. Now, that is the lesson that the Christian must learn from this passage. It's not arguing about someone late or not, or, or about, well, can king offer sacrifices? The bottom line is made clear. Broke commandment of God. The known commandment. Full stop. That's it. So the Christian must come to the clear realization and conviction in our hearts. Because we live in a world that constantly tells us, come on, be practical. And students, you will probably write papers about situational ethics one day, if not already written things like that. All right? Come on. You've got to be understanding, loving. Even Christians say that. Now, I'm not saying don't be understanding and don't, don't be loving. All right? When we come to that, I'll clarify. But whatever it is, we must obey God's commandment and not break it at any cost. Now, so that is the clear lesson that we must draw from this. Now, then, next, let's, let's go through the verses, all right? And begin to ask yourself, now, what are the situations? What are the predicaments that I can find myself in, maybe now or maybe one day, that I must say, Lord, when I am in that kind of situation, I must remember this. All right, what are some of them? 
Now, let us go through them. Now, the first one, the first one, what do you think it is? Well, I think it's quite clear. It's found in, well, Saul himself saying, well, the Philistines that are gathered, they are going to come upon me. Now, what is that situation that he was facing? Verse, verse um, chapter 13, now, verse 5 tells us, as I've mentioned just now, 30,000 chariots aligned in his sight. You just imagine that sight. The most powerful, most advanced, and most destructive and success rates using chariots to kill, to, to maim, to win battles are extremely high. 30,000 of them. All right? 6,000 horsemen. So many soldiers, you can't even count them. Now, the point is this. When overwhelming odds are against us, that is the point. When you are in a predicament where you, in your sight, you see that there is no way I can escape this. There is no way I can solve this problem. There is no way I can get out of this alive even, all right, to that extreme. But God says, yeah, I know. I'm not blind, of course. I know how many people gathered before you. But you broke my commandment. It does not matter how overwhelmed, how the odds are overwhelming against you. No grounds to disobey me of regarding what I told you not to do. Now, what is it in life? For example... Maybe at work. I don't think it's 30,000 people against you. Maybe just 30 people, the whole department against you. Against your belief. Against your faith. Against how when you want to do something that you know, I cannot lie, I cannot cheat, I must be righteous. And they all are against you. What should you do? Uh, you know, pastor, this situation, you, you don't know my office, you know. You don't know my colleagues. You don't know my boss. Or maybe students in school. You don't know my friends, you know. They, they pressurize me, all right? They pressure me and to do this with them or that with them. You know, you don't understand so many people so difficult. Maybe parents, you bring up your children and say, Pastor, you don't understand in this day and age, everyone in school is like that. Everyone. Everyone, right? To him, look at the numbers. In those situations, we must guard our thoughts, our choices. I still cannot break God's known commandments even though it looks like if I obeyed God, it may be very detrimental to me in life. Situational ethics tell you, well, take care of yourself. Don't worry about this absolute rule of we are not allowed to break any of God's commandments. Come on, Christians, be realistic. Christian telling you that? Mother, hey mother, you know, I'm a mother myself, I'm a Christian mother. You know, all Christianity is doing that. Everyone is living like that. Come on, you know, your relatives and all that, they are going to pressurize you. How, how, are you going to really obey God to that extent? Then you feel that pressure. Yeah, everyone against you. Now the next one. So no matter how afraid you are, it looks like it's Hopeless, you cannot break God's commandment. Now, the next one, look at, so that's verse 5. Then let's look at verse 6. Now, when the men of Israel saw they were gathered in a strait, 
Now, they went into hiding, right? They went into hiding. And then some were shivering in their pants. Now, in life, sometimes you are frightened. And then you look at people around you. They are also frightened. It's a very easy excuse for us to say everybody is frightened. Everybody is, is hiding and what? Now, if I need to do what I need to do to survive, everybody's doing it as already. I don't think it is wrong because everyone else is also frightened. Now, Christians don't live like, well, you know, anyway, other Christians are doing it as well, right? It's not easy and it is, it is very frightening, you know, pastor, to live like that. So I think it's okay for me to break God's rule here and there, a little bit here, a little bit there. Again, I want to emphasize, the situation may seem very reasonable to us, but God simply makes it very clear. You have broken God's commandment. Whatever it was, God says, do not offer sacrifices before Samuel turns up. Whatever it is, they say you have broken God's commandment. So don't keep focusing on which, which one that he broke. All we must learn is this. God says you cannot break my known commandments. That is it in any situation. All right? Now, then, well, the next thing. So we move to verse 7, 7 and 8. Now, the Bible says that um, all that followed him, trem followed him trembling, and verse 8, he tarried seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed, and Samuel came not to Gilgal. All right? Now, what else must we be very conscious of not when we're in such a situation, not to practice situational ethics is, well, number one, when there is no help in sight. You see, when there's a lot of people when well, many people are against us and we are very afraid, but when, if there is help, okay, when there, there is help coming, so I, obey, I will obey God. But he said, well, Samuel, you know, the people may come upon me already. You're not here, so I have to do this, right? You're not here to help me. The people, they are all hiding. No one is going to help me, you know, so I got to help myself, right? So very often in situations like that, you say, I, I got to do what I need to do to help myself. Some of you got to understand that, right? So we can be in such a situation too. Now actually in this, no one, no one, no one is there to help, right? They're all afraid of Samuel. You yourself did not turn up. Now it also can be a situation where he is basically hinting, Samuel, you know, I had to force myself to do this. It's because you did not turn up, you know. Now, in other words, the situation where, in your mind, it is someone else's fault. Someone is at fault. Someone is the reason why I don't have a choice but to do this. I have no choice, you know. Someone else, Samuel's fault. Daddy and mommy's fault. My children's fault. My boss, my situation, my health. God says, no matter what it is, even assuming it was Samuel's fault, Samuel's fault, which I don't believe it is, God did not say he turned up late. He just did not turn up. And when he finished offering sacrifices, Samuel turned up, all right? He could have waited right to the end of the seven days. But whatever it is, 
Don't look at others and say, well, people have deserted me. Um, and the person who's supposed to help me is not there. So in this situation, I got to help myself. Don't think like that. Daddy and mommy, well, they don't help me with my homework. My friends don't help me with my homework. So I don't know how to do this. It's okay if I copy, right? I don't have a choice. I need to pass my exam, right? I have to copy. I have to take my friend's homework and plagiarize at the place of work. Well, you know, my colleague is supposed to help me, but no one is helping me, and I can lose my job, you know, if I, if I don't bend God's laws a little, lie a little, deceive a little. I'm not going to make it in my job. Well, in job interviews, well, if I don't make up some false things, then I may not get this job, you know. No one can help me, right? So all sorts of things will go through our minds when we are in a situation that is so frightening to us. Now, by the way, if at this point you still doubt, right? I want you to know that Saul did not disagree. Saul did not argue. Saul did not resist Samuel's judgment, all right? Saul knew very well that he was doing something he should not. How do we know that? Now, look at verse, verse 12, all right? Now, therefore said I, the Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I forced myself therefore and offered a burnt offering. I forced myself therefore. So he was not, yeah, I, don't, I don't know what to do. Let me do this. Let me try that. He forced himself, meaning to say he knew it was something he should not do. If he did, he would be breaking God's commandment in offering the sacrifice. He knew. That's why I said, I had to force myself to do it. I know I was not supposed to do it. So Saul did not say, oh, uh, Samuel, I misunderstood you. Huh? I, I didn't know. He did not say that. He said, I, I knew I should not and I did it. He did not say, well, Samuel, um, I, I did not hear you. He knew he was doing something. He should not. In a situation that he said, well, it should justify what I did. A dangerous way of thinking, dear hearers. Now then the next, um, next one is this. Well, by the way, let us learn. Now, as long as God has commanded us something in his holy Bible, in his holy word, and you know it, don't fear. Obey him. Simply obey him. However many people, however overwhelming the situation is, however seemingly helpless and no one is there to help you, whatever it is, if God says, don't do that. Thou shalt not. Or thou shalt. Just simply obey. Don't fear. Situational ethics must not be allowed to cause fear in our hearts. All right? Now, the next one. The next one. Well, what about lives at stake? Lives at stake. Well, for his own life for sure. If you look at um, verse 12, the Philistines will come down now upon me. To Gilgal. Now upon me in Gilgal. Well, lives are at stake, you know. You've got to understand, Samuel, you know, this 30,000 
blah, 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 and all that. You look at that, and me and my trembling 600 um, um, shivering men, we are going to be dead. Well, I'm not sure if he's concerned about the lives of his soldiers, but he was saying me and, um, me and I and all that all the time. Now, let me be clear first. We are not teaching that you be careless. We are not teaching that you don't care about your life. There's human responsibility taught in the Bible, all right? We are not saying that you go walk um, in a dangerous place on your lo- alone at night and say, ah, situational ethics, I must not fear, all right? And put yourself in harm's way. But what we are saying is this. The Bible is very clear. Even when you are in a situation where it is no fault of your own and you've done your human responsibility, which is your responsibility, as long as God tells us not to do something or to do something, you must trust that your life is in the hands of God, not the situation. Remember that. It's when we think it's the situation that will def- define the outcome and what I do in that situation will, be, will, will define my safety or the safety of my family, the safety of my children, the safety of my life, my, my rice bowl, right? whatever it is. When you think it's your choice in that situation, even if it means breaking God's law, disobeying God, is what will preserve you. You are sorely mistaken. God says, no, no, Saul. As long as I tell you not to do that, you may think your life is at stake. You may think that they're coming down upon you now. I will protect you. Situational ethics say no absolute law because they don't believe that absolute law will work, right? To save their lives, right? So Christian, are you willing to live like that? Now, Saul... Here, I think you must remember. Fathers, church leaders, mothers, those who are serving in any lead capacity in church. Do you know why it's so important that you must never practice situational ethics at all? Saul was given a chance to live rightly. But he chose situational ethics. Immediately, God says, you're finished. Because Saul was supposed to represent God to the people. How Saul lived, how Saul made decisions as king over God's people will define what is right, what is wrong. If Saul lives a life that says situational ethics is what is correct, absolute law of God, is not important, Israel will be finished. That is how they will live. What witness will they be? What obedience, what holiness, all gone. Now, that is why fathers, mothers, you're the authority at home. Your children will look at you. When you are in a dire situation, how do you make decisions? Daddy is going to lose his job, you know. Oh, no, who's going to feed all these lives under me? I think I'll have to take a fly-in, fly-out job. Even if it means I break God's commandment of not worshipping Him on Sundays. But, you know, lives are at stake. Pastor, you don't understand. You know, I need to take care of the lives under me, right? 
Now, when we begin to make decisions, like, well, you know, if my child, if I don't lie a bit and don't say something very, I say everything very accurately, my school application, my child may not get into school. It can't get into this school, then how? Right? The situation is dire. Then your children know, but our, this is not our address. But why is this our address on my application sheet? What they see you do. But, hey, you know, do you want to study? You don't get in school. No? You must, we, must, we must make sure you get in. Get in first, then we worry about that. Situational ethics. Very common. They can be very common in Christians' life. You can think of whatever situation you're in. Applying for the job, applying for entrance to university, whatever it may be, your PR, learn. If God says, don't lie, don't deceive. If God says very clearly in his word, half-truths, white lies are lies, then you simply say, yes, God, then I won't lie. You know, how many times you've seen again and again in Christianity, in church, even in this church, people who say, pastor, pray for me. There are some things that I'm putting in my PR application. It's going to be very detrimental, but I know I cannot break God's commandment. It means that I'll be deported back, but I will do what is, I will write what is true. The aim is to obey God, not to get a good outcome. Please remember that. Situation ethics is the opposite. Your aim is to get a good outcome, good for you. Now, next one. All right, so, so home or anyone serving in church, remember that. Now, we pray that God will protect this church. When we started our church extension project, there were a few principles that we have to make sure that we abide by as a committee. I made sure that, number one, we will do this project like as if we are building our own house. That is the kind of diligence that we must put into. So I mentioned that. The other one is whenever we are doing, and then we find that, well, you know, if we submit our application, writing this or in this way to the council, well, we might not get approval. But the principle always is, we always write what is true. Even sometimes when um, the architect, now not that he want to openly lie, it's just say, maybe say it this way, we say, no, there is no need. Let us trust God. If God wants us to have a church extension, he will protect it. If God doesn't want us to have a church extension, then it gets not approved, the then it is not his will for us to carry on. That's the principle from beginning to end. All right? And it's very important because whether God will protect the church, whether God will be in the midst of the church, what's the point of having a big extension hall? When we mix decisions like that, like God already said, your kingdom is taken away from you. What kingdom work to do for God? What is the, what is the lesson to, to congregation members? Oh, Christianity is all right. You know, even the leaders show that. Committee members show that. Just as long as... Now, this is the next principle. All right? The next principle is as long as good comes out of it. Even spiritual good comes out of it. That is one of the most dangerous thinking in Christianity. Now, if... Now, to Saul, right? Um, I get saved. Israel will continue to have a king. I win the battles, right? If I pray, God help me, I win the battles. Then Israel will be glorifying God. Good will come out of it, right? 
So I must pray. I must pray. I must do this, even if it means I am breaking God's law, whatever it was that God commanded. Spiritual good may come. We must never, ever do that. You know, I've actually heard Christians say this. You know, I will, I will marry an unbeliever. I say, but the Bible is very clear on this matter, right? Marry um, in, in the Lord means only believers. Both in Old and New Testament, it makes it clear. In the Lord, only believers. Oh, but you know, um, when I marry, I, I give my life to evangelize this unbeliever. So I marry him or her and will give my life to evangelize him or her and win him or her over to the Lord. Good may come. No, if, you know, this person is wow, very against Christian. If I don't marry him or her, no one can reach this person. Good may come. Well, others, it's like, well, let us, as a church, deceive the government in a bit here, a bit there, submit it like that, submit it like that. Well, but, you know, good may come, right? We get to do extension, more people can come to church, or whatever it is. Good may come. Now then, there's also the idea that, well, this is where relativism is. Now, as long as it can bring others to Christ, as long as it can make people love God more. Now, God's commandments never contradict each other. That's why some feel that, well, now, children, don't say this. Well, Daddy, the Bible says I must, I must study hard, right? I must bear a good testimony and not do badly in school. So I don't go and worship God on Sunday. You can't say that. I can't say that, well, I must work, right? I must, the Bible says if I don't, those who don't work, don't eat. So I must have a job. So even if it means a job that, that a Christian should not be in. Now, then the next one, all right? The next one quickly. Now, there is the situation where well, this is a spiritual act. Samuel said, as Saul said, I have to pray. I have to pray. You see, sometimes we think, well, this is a spiritual act. If it's a spiritual act, then it is always correct. Not true. If a spiritual act, if one spiritual act contravenes the word of God in another way, then you cannot use that to say, well, this spiritual act justifies in this situation for me to break another law, right? So I've already given you an example, which I jumped ahead just now. Marrying an unbeliever, um, taking jobs that you should not, um, and all that. Now, but, and even in here, sometimes it can be, now, roughly, just roughly correct. No absolute, all right? Now, roughly, I think rough, roughly as long as well, I didn't really break, but I'm still doing a spiritual, roughly. Now, don't, don't live a Christian life that is not absolute. It's either you have sinned or you have not sinned. Don't live a life that, well, it's because this is a spiritual act, so roughly I think it's okay. Now, don't have this idea. As long as my husband, my wife, my children, uh, my relatives, my parents attend church, it doesn't matter what church. Right? Better than don't attend church, correct? So even if it's an unbiblical church, well, roughly, you know, but they are going to church, right? At least they are going to church. Now, you see, these are all situational ethics. The Bible is clear. 
Be ye separate. Touch not their unclean things. Come out from among them. You cannot live a life that is not absolute. God is very absolute. What have light to do with darkness? Simply that. Right? Now then, another one. He said, well, I, will, I had to force myself. You know what is how our thinking will be in situational ethics? I had to force myself. Meaning to say, I really didn't want to do it. I don't, even, I, I, I don't disagree with you that this is wrong. What I choose for my child, for myself, or, or, or the decision that I made, I don't disagree with you that it's wrong. But I had no choice. Situational ethics. But I had no choice. I actually don't like to do this. But I have no choice. That is what he is saying. Now, in situational ethics, that is how we will, we will think. That's how we will think. Now, God says that there is no temptation that is not common to men. We study in First Peter. Again and again, God reminds us, now, what we go through, remember your brethren. It is not unique. God also reminds us that whatever struggle we go through, He will ensure that we can go through it. And if it's something that we cannot, He will deliver us. God make all these promises. There's no such thing as, I had no choice. Now, when we say that, usually is, I want a certain outcome. I want a certain outcome. That is why I have no choice. It's usually that. Because if I, made, if I obeyed God, then the outcome will likely not be what I want. For him, likely that I'll die. Right? They're coming down on me. That's not the outcome I want. I want this outcome. That's why I say there is no choice. Whenever we think like that, I say, I am allowing situation to, to make me say that God cannot help me and God is a liar. All right? Be very serious about that. Now then, now, lastly, lastly, all right? Now, we have to ask ourselves in a situation, um, just because we feel good, we felt good. Look at Saul, all right? Verse 10. Behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might salute him. Now, Saul was actually quite happy. I'm going to greet him. There was nothing in his heart to say, oh no, what have I done? It is Samuel that has to say, what have you done? He happily went out to greet him. Now, sometimes in situational ethics, we do something and we say, well, actually, I feel quite good about this. You know, um, you can show them Bible verses. No, but, but you know, I, I feel good about this. God led me, and I feel good about this. Very dangerous. Based on absolute, based your choices and your decisions and your judgment upon, is this absolutely correct according to the Word of God? That's it. If I did something, whatever the outcome, good outcome in that, I feel good. Does not mean that God is pleased. Remember that. All right? Now, out then in closing. Now, what are some of the key lessons if we summarize? Now, Saul went through a test. Look at verse 13. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. This was a test for Saul. Saul was warned in the previous, previous chapter, we already said, we read, he said, but if ye shall do wickedly, still do wickedly, ye shall be consumed, both ye and your king. 
Saul heard that. Saul was present when Samuel warned, if you still will do wickedly means disobey God, you will be consumed. You'll be done with. Now, all of us must always view situations as tests. As tests. God will need to test us, not tempt us, be clear. Before God can use us, before God can say, like, this is a child of mine that I will use mightily in this, on this planet Earth. We'll be useful. It's whether we will be people that practice situation ethics or we will be child of God that says, God, even if I lose my life, even if I lose everything that I have, even when everybody is afraid and don't obey you, even when, Lord, if I, if I did it my way, good will come out of it as far as I can see. In my choice for my family, myself. But Lord, if it breaks any of your known commandments in Holy Scriptures, I will obey you instead. Now that is, that is the kind of person that God will use. Samuel, Saul failed. When we are in a situation, I always remember, I must not fail God. The world has conditioned us to think according to situational ethics. Now remember that. Now then, ultimately, ultimately, situational ethics is a lack of trust in God. Please understand that. It's a lack of trust in God. God says, I command you to do this, but God, I think your way won't work. So I think I need to tweak it a bit. God, I need to disobey it. Now, we've been studying the Bible, and we study more of it. The Bible has absolute truths only, all right? Either you don't trust that God's command will work, or you don't trust that God will help you. That's why you now have to take things into your own hand. Situational ethics is that. Now, end of this message, how do you feel? There are some who have come and gone in our church. And because messages here tend to be like that, right? Now, some feel that is, this church is not pragmatic. That's the exact word they use. This church is not practical. You need to live. You need to make a living. All right? But the definition of that is, Big house, big car, children go on very nice holidays. That's their definition. There's always a way, but they choose that life. I said, but not pragmatic, not practical. This church is, in its preaching, excessively demanding. Excessively demanding. Those were the words. Too demanding, unreasonable in expectations, and unloving. You got to understand, this person hasn't had a job for a long time. And then he takes... A job that breaks God's commandment. Yeah, we know, right? But, but come on, be understanding. He needs a job. It's embarrassing that he doesn't have a job and his wife has to work. You, when you preach this sort of thing, you attack them. We don't attack people. We simply try to help you understand. Like Saul, Samuel kept trying to help Saul understand. Now, I believe, I wonder sometimes when this, if these people were to stand and if us, we ourselves, all right, don't talk about these people, were to stand beside and hear, and you look at all the soldiers there, you look at poor shivering Saul and the um, 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 600 
um, shivering man with him. You look at all this, and he said, he, he just want to pray what? He just want to pray. Now, if we were standing beside and watching all this, if we were alive at that time, I wonder how many of us will actually say, Samuel, I think you are unreasonable. Samuel, I think you are unloving. Samuel, I think you are too demanding on Saul. I think many of us will say that. Because sometimes when, even among yourselves, you, you encourage another mother or father, say, don't. And they say, ah, you don't understand. You're very demanding. Extreme, no, this church is extreme. But as long as it is in the word of God, I hope you understand. If you don't obey, look at verse 13. Now would have the Lord as now the Lord would have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. You know what Samuel was saying? Saul, you know, God wanted you to be to enjoy this. I wanted you to enjoy this success as a king. Verse 14. But now, this foolish situational ethics that you applied, but now thy kingdom shall not continue. Isn't it very sad? It's extreme when we ask you to obey man's commandments. But when it is God's commandment, it's loving. It is the best for you. Now, so I hope that you understand situational ethics have no place in a person, in a Christian's life. Saul was proud, rebellious, self-sufficient. That is why he ended up in this state. We must trust. Then we will obey let us rise to sing. 323. Trust and obey. 323. 323.